Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I continue to live in the middle of a construction site, so I apologize in advance if our adventure in live radio goes wrong. But as we ramp up production due to the numbers going up through the roof, really, in terms of subscription and people paying, which we are greatly appreciative for, again, $70 a year is all we ask, and we will keep them coming and increase coverage as our numbers go through the roof. And this is what you get for what you pay for. Uh, we will do more and more um, podcasts as we go. And uh, I've got the very stern partners in line. And, and John Goodnight, my able second, agrees uh, that part of our future is to use the Substack community to get out into the wider world while having a lot of fun thinking together as we go. And today... We go back to the Gaza war and look at why it's so incredibly difficult to sort things out. Um, tilting at peace in the Middle East is something every young Sir Galahad tries to do. Um, and I was no exception. When I was in Washington, I spent the better part of 18 months to two years working on a Middle East peace plan, as everyone does. Uh, and I realized very early on, and this is a factor that some of my business clients don't understand, which is why we play war games where you inject a healthy dose of politics into what should be rational problem solving. Most of my business um, clients are, are problem solvers above, above everything. They're pragmatic. And I love playing war games with them, which is something the firm does and does very well comes from my days playing these with the CIA. I've now been designing war games for 20 years for clients. And we inject the politics into the problem solving. And very quickly, our global intelligent uh, business folks see how difficult things are. And nowhere is this more true than over the Middle East, where you have this, you know, you could easily work out a deal for Middle East peace. And I remember touting my deal around in Egypt and in Israel. I was in Tel Aviv and in Cairo talking to people and they patted me in a rather avuncular way. I was a young guy on the shoulder and said, John, it's a great plan, but no one will ever accept it because if you accept this deal, you would be immediately killed by your own constituents. It's the Michael Collins problem. The man who founded, the founder of the IRA, great guerrilla fighter who led to the independence of Ireland, but later on was assassinated for accepting less than a full loaf. He, he left the northern provinces as part of Britain because it was the best deal he could get. But anything less than perfect meant he was betraying his constituents, some of whom killed him. And this is always the danger, that you can devise a pragmatic deal, but everybody's got to live with the politics of what goes on. And that's what we're going to talk about today, not in terms of the two-state solution. After 18 months, I knew better and moved on and started worrying about geostrategy more and the big things, particularly the rise of China, which I caught early on. Even earlier on, I caught the rise of India, which I've been ahead of the curve on for the better part of 20 years, but mainly that the Indo-Pacific was more important, uh, that the Middle East was a sinkhole of American presidencies that you have to establish some sort of balance of power so you're not dragged in, but you shouldn't worry over much about an area the size of the state of Connecticut. The Middle East is important. Um, it, is a, it, it is an interesting uh, and important American interest because of the energy that flows through the region, because of the United States' special relationship with Israel, 
but it shouldn't be the be-all and the end-all or even the focus of American foreign policy, as so increasingly it was, that really that was going to be the Indo-Pacific, where most of the world's future political growth comes from and most of the world's future political risk. And so I wanted to be where it's at and spent the last 25 years educating myself about the history, the culture, the geostrategy, the economics, the anthropology and the sociology of the Indo-Pacific. But that is not to say you can ignore the Middle East. There is a middle ground here between the neocons' view of fighting endless failing wars there and isolationalistically doing nothing about it. I mean, there has to be somewhere between war and isolationism. And that's what we're grappling for, which is the U.S., setting up some sort of balance of power in the region and serving as an offshore balancer if that comes undone. But we're going to talk even more immediately today about the Gaza war and why it's so hard to unwind this thing and get anywhere with what happens immediately after the war. We won't even go as big picture as leaving the region in a stable state. Donald Trump and, and Barack Obama tried opposite approaches. Uh, Obama's approach was, look, there are five great powers in the region. You have Egypt, you have Israel, you have Turkey, you have Iran, and you have Saudi Arabia. You have to bring Iran in from the cold to establish an organic balance of power, and you serve as an offshore balancer, hence the impetus for the nuclear deal. Donald Trump, seeing that the nuclear deal was tragically flawed, and he's right that the Iranians could simply wait out the conditions while getting all the benefits of sanctions, opted instead for an alliance-heavy approach where the U.S. would go around the problem of the Palestinians and would enlist Saudi Arabia and Israel, uh, to some extent Turkey, and see Iran as the enemy um, and try to balance forces to balance against Iranian adventurism. Uh, both these approaches have their limits. Of the two, I think the Trump approach has done better. I think the Obama approach is well and truly destroyed with Iran proxies in Hamas starting the war. I think that this is the utter discrediting of the Obama approach, but both of them are devilishly hard to bring about. It's easy to say, just leave. It's easy to say, just fight a war. It's harder to organically establish some sort of stable balance in the region, which is a, which is a secondary American interest, not, not tertiary, certainly, but not primary in the way the Indo-Pacific is. Remember the Roosevelt rule from the last best hope, Anybody who can dominate either Europe or Asia, that's a primary interest. Nobody rises to that. Iran can't dominate the whole of the Middle East. It has way too many problems. There's the little problem of Israel being the dominant military, Saudi Arabia being the swing producer in OPEC, uh, in OPEC and the keeper of the holy places, and huge Iranian internal problems relating to the mullah's mismanagement of the economy and corruption. But Iranian adventurism is something to rally around, but even Iran at its height can't meet the Roosevelt rules. So this is not a primary interest, as we would say. But it's not tertiary either. Again, given the, the oil and energy that flow from this region, which is fundamental for the global economy, and given our special relationship with Israel, this is easily a second order or a secondary interest, which means you can't do nothing. Um, though you want to stop short of constantly fighting losing wars there or doing nothing. You establish a balance of power which Trump under the Abraham Accords, I think, has got closest to doing. Uh, again, of course, he's given no credit for that, and the Senate Obama's given far too much credit when the Iran proxy Hamas's incredibly barbaric attack, which opened the Gaza war, really puts paid to the fantasy that Iran can be brought in from the cold. You can't bring in a country from the cold that's a revolutionary power, and Iran is. They want to upend the order in the Middle East 
in the most barbaric way possible. You can't negotiate with someone who is a revolutionary power, and Iran has proven to be so. So point to Trump there. Um, but on the immediate aftermath of the Gaza war, here's why things are so hard. And as I write, it's the politics of a Kafka novel, uh, the Gordian knot that is the politics underlying the situation. So let's imagine, again, and this is what realism is good at, not that we're in the position of Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, and Joe Biden, President of the United States, but that we are Bibi Netanyahu or Joe Biden, President of the United States. Here's the problem for Netanyahu. If Netanyahu's government falls at present and there were new elections, by all polling, he would lose because he, he failed in the most primary uh, goal that Israeli citizens, one of their prime ministers, that they keep security. Rather, he was lulled to sleep on the border with uh, Gaza and Hamas attacked. He was asleep at the switch. This will be proven true. Every other major leader has claimed their responsibility except Bibi, but he is blamed by the Israeli people. And the political tradition of Israel is simple, that if you fail to keep security, however revered you are, out you go a couple of years after the war that you that, that arose as a result of this, uh, peters out. So Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan, Moshe Dayan, the great Israeli, probably the greatest Israeli general, and that's saying something, the hero of the 1967 war, they fell asleep at the switch over the Yom Kippur War of 1973. They successfully prosecute the war, and then out they go after a decent interval. This happened to Begin. This happened to Olmert in Lebanon, where things got out of control. Then out they go after a decent interval. Bibi's trying to buck Israeli tradition, political culture, but he's unlikely to do so. Hence his desperation, because if there's an election in the next year, as there well could be, Bibi and the Likud party on the right and his even further right allies stand to lose it because they failed in their most basic task of security for the Israeli people surrounded and bereft with enemies. And so Bibi doesn't want to have an election at any cost. So he's in this perpetual tactical while he's prosecuting a war, he has this tactical political problem. If he goes along with Joe Biden's request for a two-state solution, if he enters into serious political negotiations with the Palestinian Authority in the wake of the war for a two-state solution, um, the, his far-right um, allies in the government are sure to leave. If they leave in the government, Paul's he's sure to lose. If he loses... He's almost certainly, without immunity, going to be convicted in one of a series of corruption trials that he's in. So he'll either pay a fine, be ruined forever, or go to jail. None of those are great options if you're Bibi. So he has to reject a two-state solution or his coalition falls apart. On the other hand, in his government, his war cabinet, he's led in centrists like Benny Gantz into it and Gabby Eisenkot whose son was just killed, and there's great sympathy for Eisenkot prosecuting the war. And so he's in trouble if, if, if he just ignores any sort of negotiation or outreach to the Palestinians because he could lose Gantz and Eisenkot. The government could fall that way, their elections, and he loses again. So he's in this Kafka novel issue that he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't. The only way he can survive is immobility, hoping nobody much demands anything of him because of the centrist. And Gantz is by far the most popular politician in Israel. He entered into the national government, the national war cabinet 
um, even though he hates Netanyahu, who's already betrayed him a number of times politically, but he enters into it out of a soldierly sense of duty. The Israeli people, of course, warm to this. If there were an election today, Gantz and his centrists would probably win. So he's got a gun to his head with Gantz in the center and a gun to his head with his right-wing coalition partners over the two-state solution and over what to do. Um, it comes up in, in issues like the ceasefire agreement that's being torturously negotiated by William Burns of the CIA, the Qataris uh, dealing with Hamas and Israel as intermediaries in Qatar as we speak right now, that the basic outline of a plan would be for about a two-month ceasefire in return for the release of many of the remaining 130 Israeli hostages. Now, centrists like Gantz and Eisenkot are for doing this, uh, they can always go back to fighting after the two months are up and they get the hostages back. The hostages' families have become a major political force in Israel and spend their time heckling and protesting Bibi Netanyahu. But again, he's caught in this political, domestic political Israeli vice. If he agrees to the two-month ceasefire, his far-right allies might, again, leave the government destroying it because he's not focusing on the destruction of Hamas as he promised to do. On the other hand, if he ignores this deal and the hostages stay in the horrendous conditions that they're probably in, this will put pressure on Eisenkot and especially Gantz to leave the government, which will fall the other way. So whatever issue comes up, when you reach a key decision-making point, uh, Bibi has to lose somebody, and if he loses either the center or the far right, he's done for. And that's why immobility, stretching things on, playing for time, has become really Bibi's only tactic and has become a strategy, which isn't a very good long-term strategy. And that's, that's where he is at the moment. At a broader level, the hope of, of the Abraham Accords of Donald Trump, the ultimate goal is to bring the Saudis and the Israelis into some sort of formal diplomatic recognition. So from an Iranian point of view, this is the reason that they've been sending seed money to Hamas. And the point from an Israeli point of, or from an Iranian point of view, as we've said, of why the war has been fought in the first place. Your three primary enemies, the great Satan, the United States, the lesser Satan, Israel, and, and your Saudi enemies, the champion of the Sunnis, well, whereas Iran is the champion of the Shia, your three primary enemies are all getting together in a formal diplomatic pact. And now, this is already preceded. There's all kinds of informal ties, intelligence-wise, strategically, and financially, between the Israelis and the Saudis already. But this would formalize what already exists there. And that's, that's a very interesting point going ahead. And obviously, the Abraham Accords wouldn't have happened. Bahrain and wouldn't have done a deal with Israel, or the UAE wouldn't have done a deal with Israel, two of the primary Gulf states, unless their Saudi big brother winked it on. That Mohammed bin Salman tacitly signed off on Bahrain and UAE reaching this formal accord with Israel through the Abram Accords that Trump initiated, or there would have been no deal. So they're already moving closer together. The Iranians have to stop this. And that's why we did a whole podcast saying that the brutal, bleak truth is the Iranians have already accomplished their goal. They've stopped the United States and the Saudis and Israel from formally reaching a deal. The whole point of the Abram Accords is let's get around the Palestinian issue, which has no easy solution after what? three or four generations of trying, many Sir Galahads other than myself, trying to sort this out. And in return, let's go around it and worry about another issue in the region that's far more important, uh, Iranian adventurism, where we all agree. 
And this, this really built up steam that the Abram Accords involved Morocco, involved Sudan, involved Bahrain, involved UAE, that there was real momentum here. And if the Saudis had joined this and the Biden people were leaking that this was a possibility ahead of the Gaza war, that this would have been really a positive diplomatic achievement for the Biden administration, one the Iranians wanted to stop at all costs, and indeed they now have. Now MBS, although he says, look, I'm still open to a deal with Israel, it's still in interest terms makes sense for me. I can't possibly do a deal with Israel, given the feeling on the Saudi streets about the Palestinians and the bloodbath that is in Gaza. I can't possibly do a deal unless there's movement on the Palestinian issue. So sidelining the Palestinian issue to move forward with the Abraham Accords, um, which has worked up till now, the war has stopped that in its tracks. And MBS says, rightly for his own survival, from his point of view, I can't go against the will and emotions of my people unless, unless, unless there's real movement on the Palestinian issue to a two-state solution. And we come back to Bibi's original problem. If he does that, his right wing leaves him. So snakes and ladders, we're back to where we start. He can't do that. So in essence, the Iranians have stopped Saudi Arabia formally reaching a deal with Israel because of Bibi's juggling act. And this is the situation for Bibi Netanyahu. Absolutely untenable. The politics of a Kafka novel. Indeed, the situation isn't much better for Joe Biden, though. Now, let's be Joe Biden. Uh, a recently released January 2024 YouGov Economist poll looks at people who voted for Joe Biden in 2020. 51% of those who voted for Biden in 2020 believe Israel's response to Hamas has been too harsh. And so, again, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which has gone along very unhappily, with Biden supporting Israel overtly, says the response has been too harsh. And 50%, fully half of people who voted for Biden, according to the YouGov Economist poll, say that, that Israel is committing genocide against the people um, in Gaza. Now, I certainly don't believe that, and we can talk about that at length, but it doesn't matter what I believe. We're political risk analysts here in the community. What it means is that fully half of all the people who vote back Biden in 2020 in this poll, think genocide is being committed by the Israelis. This makes Joe Biden supporting Israel almost untenable. He is losing. There's another poll today, and the monthly poll that Bloomberg and Morning Consult do of the seven swing states that will determine the American election. And this is, this is an, a really well-done poll by Bloomberg. And in this poll today, in seven of the swing states, uh, Trump is ahead of Biden 48 to 42 percent. He's ahead in each of the seven swing states going on right now. And Trump's lead goes to nine points if you add in third party candidates like Jill Stein and Cornell West, who will obviously take votes, the Green Party from the Democrats and not from the Republicans. Bobby Kennedy's votes are more of a wash. So he's losing all seven swing states to Trump. And uh, by nine points, if you add in third party candidates, well above the margin of error. So Joe Biden needs the disillusioned progressives who don't agree with him over Israel and the Hamas war to come out, absolutely to come out and vote for him and not stay home. It's not that they vote for Trump. It's that they simply won't vote at all. But given that he's losing by nine points in the swing states, which is an incredible number, everything should be flashing right now in the Biden campaign. He can't afford to lose any of these voters at all, at all. It's an extraordinary number and a problem. So 
fully half of the people who voted for Biden in 20 think genocide is being committed against the people in Gaza. 51% say Israel's response has been too harsh. And, and I think this is terribly unfair. I think the Israelis have certainly gone out of their way uh, to go as slowly and, and they're aware of world opinion, the Israeli generals, and you know, incredibly aware of this. And so they're doing what they can to limit casualties. But in any war, particularly in city fighting, and we talked about this, there are going to be massive civilian casualties. There's no way around that. And everybody who, who studies war knows this. And so Biden has a problem with the progressive wing of his party, all of whom he needs to come out for him and not be disillusioned um, and stay home. And the only way he can get them on side is to push and push really, really hard for a two-state solution. There has to be something positive out of this. If Biden can go back to his people and say, yeah, I supported Israel and you didn't much like it, but guess what? In supporting Israel, we got further on a two-state solution, which is a thing you do like. So in the end, it's probably worth it. So Joe Biden is impelled by his own political problems, which are immense and Kafka-esque as well. He is impelled to push Bibi on a two-state solution, which Bibi can't give him without losing his government, meaning he might go to jail. Snakes and ladders were again right back to the Kafka novel, to the same position. We're still a joint poll of Palestinian and Israelis taken by PSR on the Palestinian side, well-regarded polling firm and Tel Aviv University on the Israeli side, show that, of course, positions in the war have hardened, that support for a two-state solution has decreased quite rapidly and dramatically among both Israelis and Palestinians since the start of the Hamas war. Only 34% of Israeli Jews and 33% of Palestinians favor a two-state solution. So Biden is trying to push a two-state solution on Netanyahu, who, if he accepts a two-state solution, will have his government fall, and that would have the support of only one-third of the Israeli Jewish constituent, which dominates Israeli politics. Nor would he have a lot of support on the Palestinian side for the, for the hapless, sclerotic, corrupt, inept, and yes, I know them, the sooner Abu Mazen passes from the scene, the better for the Palestinian people, but only a third of Palestinians presently would support a two-state solution anyway. So every which way you look at it, when you look at the political imperatives of Bibi Netanyahu, of Joe Biden, of Mohammed bin Salman, you reach the same conclusion. There simply is no deal here. There's no deal that the po politics sustain. And this is the problem in the Middle East. Could we sort out a deal on a two-state solution, much as I did, that would make pragmatic sense? Yes. Would anybody buy that deal politically in Israel, in Saudi Arabia, in the United States? No. And until the politics line up with the deal, there's no point in constructing academic abstractions in the sky. This is the problem underlying where we are in the Gaza war. It's the politics of a Kafka novel. Thank you very much. Great to do another one of these right back to back. I don't think the noise from the construction site I'm currently living in, and yes, the cats are terrified. Head researcher Witch Witchington is sitting in here with me, and the other four keep looking at me as though this is somehow my fault. I have my own domestic political problems. But fortunately, Sarah returns in triumph from her third great speech in a row, where she compared the macro situation in the world 
to an Edgar Allan Poe novel. Uh, actually, The Murders of the Rue Morgue, the first modern detective story. It was a brilliant speech. I'm very proud of her for doing it. Um, and soon we will be hitting the road. And I wanted to tell you, there's all kinds of exciting news coming up. Let me just uh, give you a brief preview. For the book, our strategy is to talk directly to the country. This is a populist book, The Last Best Hope, and we want to reach the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians that we talk about in the book, binding them together as the core of the Republican Party embraces realism as its governing foreign policy philosophy going forward. And to do this, and this has certainly been at my behest and John's, our PR team, our crack PR team led by Kathleen Schmidt, have arranged 60 local interviews around the country. We're going to blanket local radio around the country, talk to literally everybody that we can at the local level about what we're doing and try to build up a populist, and that's what populists do, a populist groundswell of support for the book at the local level. And that's the exciting news. 30 interviews in February, which will be challenging as we will be in, I'll spend a week seeing the kids and working and with some clients in Bavaria. And then we will, of course, in, in early March, and I think it's March 12th, but we'll have the date for you. Uh, we're going to go to the Stand Together event from the Koch brothers, our great patrons, and go and give a formal speech to senior folks there about the book in New York. And then John and I will head down to D.C. and try to sell this book to our friends in the Republican Party establishment. And you will be with us step by step by step as we do this. So February, we're going to be, we're going to have 30 interviews in a week in Bavaria. March, 30 interviews in an exciting week in New York, uh, kicking the book off formally for the Coke board meeting, the salon dinner that they have up in New York, and then head down to DC and start selling this to the Republican uh, people. And very exciting news there. I'll tell you as we go about some of the people and leadership folks that we're going to be talking to and giving speeches to about the book. And we really move this into gear. For those of you who haven't bought The Last Best Hope, please do so today. It's available on Amazon everywhere. And the numbers have been great. So please do keep buying. Buy one for your friends. Anybody would be interested. This is an evangelical project and help us in our community cross the lies to the people who would be interested in seeing what we're doing in this book having a real political impact. And I think they'd also find it, as it was to write, just plain great fun and learn a lot. And, and I think it has a political purpose, but also has huge worth just as a book on its own. So please do that. Please do write a review. We're at 48, only two to go to move the, the needle with Bezos. So we're almost there. And again, please do subscribe. Please do give the $70. And in return, we will keep them coming as we've done today with, I think, this very important look at the political risk factors underlying the Gaza war. But that's our exciting news for the community. The last best hope about to hit the road. 60 interviews coming up in February and March. A week in Bavaria, a week then at the Salon Dinner for the Stand Together Alliance, the Koch Foundation. We're very excited to do that in New York. And then John and I get together and head down to D.C. on the Amtrak. Joe Biden's old haunt, and start selling this to the Republican leadership as we try to make this book truly historical. And you will be with us every step of the way. Thanks so much. And on to tomorrow, where I hope we get a chance to talk about the zombies and one of the great concept albums ever made. Incredibly underrated band. I love them. Um, Odyssey and Oracle. Take care.